The audacity of this pirouette technique would have dazzled Diaghilev. If one line of argument failed to persuade, he would deftly switch to another, Hertzfeld said. Sometimes he would throw you off balance by suddenly adopting your position as his own, without acknowledging that he ever thought differently. That happened repeatedly to Bruce Horn, the programmer who, with Tesler, had been lured from Xerox Park. One week I'd tell him about an idea that I had, and he would say it was crazy, recalled Horn. The next week he'd come and say, Hey, I have this great idea, and it would be my idea. You'd call him on it and say, Steve, I told you that a week ago, and he'd say, Yeah, 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 and just move right along. It was as if Jobs' brain circuits were missing a device that would modulate the extreme spikes of impulsive opinions that popped into his mind. So in dealing with him, the Mac team adopted an audio concept called a low-pass filter. In processing his input, they learned to reduce the amplitude of his high-frequency signals. That served to smooth out the data set and provide a less jittery moving average of his evolving attitudes. After a few cycles of him taking alternating extreme positions, said Hertzfeld, we would learn to low-pass filter his signals and not react to the extremes. Was Jobs' unfiltered behavior caused by a lack of emotional sensitivity? No, almost the opposite. He was very emotionally attuned, able to read people and know their psychological strengths and vulnerabilities. He could stun an unsuspecting victim with an emotional towel snap, perfectly aimed. He intuitively knew when someone was faking it or truly knew something. This made him masterful at cajoling, stroking, persuading, flattering, and intimidating people. He had the uncanny capacity to know exactly what your weak point is, know what will make you feel small to make you cringe, Joanna Hoffman said. It's a common trait in people who are charismatic and know how to manipulate people. Knowing that he can crush you makes you feel weakened and eager for his approval. So then he can elevate you and put you on a pedestal and own you. Ann Bowers became an expert at dealing with Jobs' perfectionism, petulance, and prickliness. She had been the human resources director at Intel, but had stepped aside after she married its co-founder, Bob Noyce. She joined Apple in 1980 and served as a calming mother figure who would step in after one of Jobs' tantrums. She would go to his office, shut the door, and gently lecture him. I know, I know, he would say. Well then, please stop doing it, she would insist. Bowers recalled, he would be good for a while, and then a week or so later I would get a call again. She realized that he could barely contain himself. He had these huge expectations, and if people didn't deliver, he couldn't stand it. He couldn't control himself. I could understand why Steve would get upset, and he was usually right, but it had a hurtful effect. It created a fear factor. He was self-aware, but that didn't always modify his behavior. Jobs became close to Bowers and her husband, and he would drop in at their Los Gatos Hills home unannounced. She would hear his motorcycle in the distance and say, I guess we have Steve for dinner again. For a while, she and Noyce were like a surrogate family. He was so bright and also so needy. 
He needed a grown-up, a father figure, which Bob became, and I became like a mother figure. There were some upsides to Jobs's demanding and wounding behavior. People who were not crushed ended up being stronger. They did better work out of both fear and an eagerness to please. His behavior can be emotionally draining, but if you survive, it works, Hoffman said. You could also push back sometimes and not only survive, but thrive. That didn't always work. Raskin tried it, succeeded for a while, and then was destroyed. But if you were calmly confident, if Jobs sized you up and decided that you knew what you were doing, he would respect you. In both his personal and his professional life over the years, his inner circle tended to include many more strong people than toadies. The Mac team knew that. Every year, beginning in 1981, it gave out an award to the person who did the best job of standing up to him. The award was partly a joke, but also partly real, and Jobs knew about it and liked it. Joanna Hoffman won the first year. From an Eastern European refugee family, she had a strong temper and will. One day, for example, she discovered that Jobs had changed her marketing projections in a way she found totally reality-distorting. Furious, she marched to his office. As I'm climbing the stairs, I told his assistant, I am going to take a knife and stab it into his heart, she recounted. Al Eisenstadt, the corporate counsel, came running out to restrain her. But Steve heard me out and backed down. Hoffman won the award again in 1982. I remember being envious of Joanna because she would stand up to Steve and I didn't have the nerve yet, said Debbie Coleman, who joined the Mac team that year. Then in 1983, I got the award. I had learned you had to stand up for what you believed, which Steve respected. I started getting promoted by him after that. Eventually, she rose to become head of manufacturing. One day, Jobs barged into the cubicle of one of Atkinson's engineers and uttered his usual, this is shit. As Atkinson recalled, the guy said, no, it's not. It's actually the best way. And he explained to Steve the engineering trade-offs he'd made. Jobs backed down. Atkinson taught his team to put Jobs' words through a translator. We learned to interpret this is shit to actually be a question that means, tell me why this is the best way to do it. But the story had a coda, which Atkinson also found instructive. Eventually, the engineer found an even better way to perform the function that Jobs had criticized. He did it better because Steve had challenged him, said Atkinson, which shows you can push back on him but should also listen, for he's usually right. Jobs' prickly behavior was partly driven by his perfectionism and his impatience with those who made compromises in order to get a product out on time and on budget. He could not make trade-offs well, said Atkinson. If someone didn't care to make their product perfect, they were a bozo. At the West Coast Computer Fair in April 1981, for example, Adam Osborne released the first truly portable personal computer. It was not great, it had a five-inch screen and not much memory, but it worked well enough. As Osborne famously declared, Adequacy is sufficient, all else is superfluous. 
Jobs found that approach to be morally appalling, and he spent days making fun of Osborne. This guy just doesn't get it, Jobs repeatedly railed as he wandered the apple corridors. He's not making art, he's making shit. One day Jobs came into the cubicle of Larry Kenyon, an engineer who was working on the Macintosh operating system, and complained that it was taking too long to boot up. Kenyon started to explain, but Jobs cut him off. If it could save a person's life, would you find a way to shave ten seconds off the boot time? he asked. Kenyon allowed that he probably could. Jobs went to a whiteboard and showed that if there were five million people using the Mac and it took ten seconds extra to turn it on every day, that added up to three hundred million or so hours per year that people would save, which was the equivalent of at least one hundred lifetimes saved per year. Larry was suitably impressed, and a few weeks later he came back and it booted up twenty-eight seconds faster, Atkinson recalled. Steve had a way of motivating by looking at the bigger picture. The result was that the Macintosh team came to share Jobs' passion for making a great product, not just a profitable one. Jobs thought of himself as an artist, and he encouraged the design team to think of ourselves that way too, said Hertzfeld. The goal was never to beat the competition or to make a lot of money. It was to do the greatest thing possible or even a little greater. He once took the team to see an exhibit of Tiffany Glass at the Metropolitan Museum in Manhattan because he believed they could learn from Louis Tiffany's example of creating great art that could be mass-produced. Recalled Bud Tribble, We said to ourselves, Hey, if we're going to make things in our lives, we might as well make them beautiful. Was all of his stormy and abusive behavior necessary? Probably not, nor was it justified. There were other ways to have motivated his team. Even though the Macintosh would turn out to be great, it was way behind schedule and way over budget because of Jobs' impetuous interventions. There was also a cost in brutalized human feelings, which caused much of the team to burn out. Steve's contributions could have been made without so many stories about him terrorizing folks, Wozniak said. I like being more patient and not having so many conflicts. I think a company can be a good family. If the Macintosh project had been run my way, things probably would have been a mess. But I think if it had been a mix of both our styles, it would have been better than just the way Steve did it. But even though Jobs' style could be demoralizing, it could also be oddly inspiring. It infused in Apple employees an abiding passion to create groundbreaking products and a belief that they could accomplish what seemed impossible. They had T-shirts made that read, 90 hours a week and loving it. Out of a fear of Jobs mixed with an incredibly strong urge to impress him, they exceeded their own expectations. I've learned over the years that when you have really good people, you don't have to baby them, Jobs later explained. By expecting them to do great things, you can get them to do great things. The original Mac team taught me that A-plus players like to work together, and they don't like it if you tolerate B work. Ask any member of that Mac team. They will tell you it was worth the pain.
Most of them agree. He would shout at a meeting, You asshole, you never do anything right, Debbie Coleman recalled. It was like an hourly occurrence. Yet, I consider myself the absolute luckiest person in the world to have worked with him. Chapter 12 The Design Real Artists Simplify A Bauhaus Aesthetic Unlike most kids who grew up in Eichler homes, Jobs knew what they were and why they were so wonderful. He liked the notion of simple and clean modernism produced for the masses. He also loved listening to his father describe the styling intricacies of various cars. So from the beginning at Apple, he believed that great industrial design, a colorfully simple logo, a sleek case for the Apple II, would set the company apart and make its products distinctive. The company's first office, after it moved out of his family garage, was in a small building it shared with a Sony sales office. Sony was famous for its signature style and memorable product designs, so Jobs would drop by to study the marketing material. He would come in looking scruffy and fondle the product brochures and point out design features, said Daniel Lewin, who worked there. Every now and then he would ask, Can I take this brochure? By 1980, he had hired Lewin. His fondness for the dark industrial look of Sony receded around June 1981 when he began attending the annual International Design Conference in Aspen. The meeting that year focused on Italian style, and it featured the architect-designer Mario Bellini, the filmmaker Bernardo Bertolucci, the carmaker Sergio Pininfarina, and the fiat heiress and politician Susanna Agnelli. I had come to revere the Italian designers, just like the kid in Breaking Away reveres the Italian bikers, recalled Jobs, so it was an amazing inspiration. In Aspen, he was exposed to the spare and functional design philosophy of the Bauhaus movement, which was enshrined by Herbert Bayer in the buildings, living suites, sans-serif font typography, and furniture of the Aspen Institute campus. Like his mentors, Walter Gropius and Ludwig Mies van der Rohe, Bayer believed that there should be no distinction between fine art and applied industrial design. The modernist international style championed by the Bauhaus taught that design should be simple, yet have an expressive spirit. It emphasized rationality and functionality by employing clean lines and forms. Among the maxims preached by Mies and Gropius were God is in the details and less is more. As with Eichler Holmes, the artistic sensibility was combined with the capability for mass production. Jobs publicly discussed his embrace of the Bauhaus style in a talk he gave at the 1983 Design Conference, the theme of which was, The Future Isn't What It Used To Be. He predicted the passing of the Sony style in favor of Bauhaus simplicity. The current wave of industrial design is Sony's high-tech look, which is gunmetal gray, maybe painted black, do weird stuff to it, he said. It's easy to do that, but it's not great. He proposed an alternative, born of the Bauhaus, 
that was more true to the function and nature of the products. What we're going to do is make the products high-tech, and we're going to package them cleanly so that you know they're high-tech. We will fit them in a small package, and then we can make them beautiful and white, just like Braun does with its electronics. He repeatedly emphasized that Apple's products would be clean and simple. We will make them bright and pure and honest about being high-tech, rather than a heavy industrial look of black, 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 like Sony, he preached. So that's our approach. Very simple. And we're really shooting for Museum of Modern Art quality. The way we're running the company, the product design, the advertising, it all comes down to this. Let's make it simple. Really simple. Apple's design mantra would remain the one featured on its first brochure. Simplicity is the ultimate sophistication. Jobs felt that design simplicity should be linked to making products easy to use. Those goals do not always go together. Sometimes a design can be so sleek and simple that a user finds it intimidating or unfriendly to navigate. The main thing in our design is that we have to make things intuitively obvious, Jobs told the crowd of design mavens. For example, he extolled the desktop metaphor he was creating for the Macintosh. People know how to deal with a desktop intuitively. If you walk into an office, there are papers on the desk. The one on the top is the most important. People know how to switch priority. Part of the reason we model our computers on metaphors like the desktop is that we can leverage this experience people already have. Speaking at the same time as Jobs that Wednesday afternoon, but in a smaller seminar room, was Maya Lin, 23, who had been catapulted into fame the previous November when her Vietnam Veterans Memorial was dedicated in Washington, D.C. They struck up a close friendship, and Jobs invited her to visit Apple. I came to work with Steve for a week, Lin recalled, I asked him, why do computers look like clunky TV sets? Why don't you make something thin? Why not a flat laptop? Jobs replied that this was indeed his goal as soon as the technology was ready. At that time, there was not much exciting happening in the realm of industrial design, Jobs felt. He had a Richard Sapper lamp, which he admired, and he also liked the furniture of Charles and Ray Eames, and the brawn products of Dieter Rams. But there were no towering figures energizing the world of industrial design the way that Raymond Lowy and Herbert Bayer had done. There really wasn't much going on in industrial design, particularly in Silicon Valley, and Steve was very eager to change that, said Lynn. His design sensibility is sleek but not slick, and it's playful. He embraced minimalism, which came from his Zen devotion to simplicity, but he avoided allowing that to make his products cold. They stayed fun. He's passionate and super serious about design, but at the same time, there's a sense of play. As Jobs' design sensibilities evolved, he became particularly attracted to the Japanese style and began hanging out with its stars such as Issei Miyake and I.M. Pei. His Buddhist training was a big influence. I have always found Buddhism, Japanese Zen Buddhism in particular, to be aesthetically sublime, he said. 
The most sublime thing I've ever seen are the gardens around Kyoto. I'm deeply moved by what that culture has produced, and it's directly from Zen Buddhism. Like a Porsche Jeff Raskin's vision for the Macintosh was that it would be like a boxy carry-on suitcase, which would be closed by flipping up the keyboard over the front screen. When Jobs took over the project, he decided to sacrifice portability for a distinctive design that wouldn't take up much space on a desk. He plopped down a phone book and declared to the horror of the engineers that it shouldn't have a footprint larger than that. So his design team of Jerry Manick and Terry Oyama began working on ideas that had the screen above the computer box with a keyboard that was detachable. One day in March 1981, Andy Hertzfeld came back to the office from dinner to find Jobs hovering over their one Mac prototype in intense discussion with the creative services director, James Ferris. We needed to have a classic look that won't go out of style, like the Volkswagen Beetle, Jobs said. From his father, he had developed an appreciation for the contours of classic cars. No, that's not right, Ferris replied. The line should be voluptuous, like a Ferrari. Not a Ferrari. That's not right either, Jobs countered. It should be more like a Porsche. Jobs owned a Porsche 928 at the time. When Bill Atkinson was over one weekend, Jobs brought him outside to admire the car. Great art stretches the taste. It doesn't follow tastes, he told Atkinson. He also admired the design of the Mercedes. Over the years, they've made the lines softer, but the details starker, he said one day as he walked around the parking lot. That's what we have to do with the Macintosh. Oyama drafted a preliminary design and had a plaster model made. The Mac team gathered around for the unveiling and expressed their thoughts. Hertzfeldt called it cute. Others also seemed satisfied. Then Jobs let loose a blistering burst of criticism. It's way too boxy. It's got to be more curvaceous. The radius of the first chamfer needs to be bigger, and I don't like the size of the bevel. With his new fluency in industrial design lingo, Jobs was referring to the angular or curved edge connecting the sides of the computer. But then he gave a resounding compliment. It's a start, he said. Every month or so, Manak and Oyama would present a new iteration based on Jobs' previous criticisms. The latest plaster model would be dramatically unveiled and all the previous attempts would be lined up next to it. That not only helped them gauge the design's evolution, but it prevented Jobs from insisting that one of his suggestions had been ignored. By the fourth model, I could barely distinguish it from the third one, said Hertzfeld. But Steve was always critical and decisive, saying he loved or hated a detail that I could barely perceive. One weekend, Jobs went to Macy's in Palo Alto and again spent time studying appliances, especially the Cuisinart. He came bounding into the Mac office that Monday, asked the design team to go buy one, and made a raft of new suggestions based on its lines, curves, and bevels. Jobs kept insisting that the machine should look friendly, 
As a result, it evolved to resemble a human face. With the disk drive built in below the screen, the unit was taller and narrower than most computers, suggesting a head. The recess near the base evoked a gentle chin, and Jobs narrowed the strip of plastic at the top so that it avoided the Neanderthal forehead that made the Lisa subtly unattractive. The patent for the design of the Apple case was issued in the name of Steve Jobs as well as Manic and Oyama. Even though Steve didn't draw any of the lines, his ideas and inspiration made the design what it is, Oyama later said. To be honest, we didn't know what it meant for a computer to be friendly until Steve told us. Jobs obsessed with equal intensity about the look of what would appear on the screen. One day, Bill Atkinson burst into Texaco Towers all excited. He had just come up with a brilliant algorithm that could draw circles and ovals on screen quickly. The math for making circles usually required calculating square roots, which the 68,000 microprocessor didn't support. But Atkinson did a workaround based on the fact that the sum of a sequence of odd numbers produces a sequence of perfect squares. For example, 1 plus 3 equals 4, 1 plus 3 plus 5 equals 9, etc. Hertzfeld recalled that when Atkinson fired up his demo, everyone was impressed except Jobs. Well, circles and ovals are good, he said, but how about drawing rectangles with rounded corners? I don't think we really need it, said Atkinson, who explained that it would be almost impossible to do. I wanted to keep the graphics routines lean and limit them to the primitives that truly needed to be done, he recalled. Rectangles with rounded corners are everywhere, Jobs said, jumping up and getting more intense. Just look around this room, he pointed out the whiteboard and the tabletop and other objects that were rectangular with rounded corners. And look outside, there's even more, practically everywhere you look. He dragged Atkinson out for a walk, pointing out car windows and billboards and street signs. Within three blocks, we found 17 examples, said Jobs. I started pointing them out everywhere until he was completely convinced. When he finally got to a no-parking sign, I said, Okay, you're right, I give up. We need to have a rounded corner rectangle as a primitive. Hertzfeld recalled, Bill returned to Texaco Towers the following afternoon with a big smile on his face. His demo was now drawing rectangles with beautifully rounded corners blisteringly fast. The dialog boxes and windows on the Lisa and the Mac and almost every other subsequent computer ended up being rendered with rounded corners. At the calligraphy class he had audited at Reed, Jobs learned to love typefaces with all of their serif and sans-serif variations, proportional spacing, and letting. When we were designing the first Macintosh computer, it all came back to me, he later said of that class. Because the Mac was bitmapped, it was possible to devise an endless array of fonts, ranging from the elegant to the wacky, and render them pixel by pixel on the screen. To design these fonts, Hertzfeld recruited a high school friend from suburban Philadelphia, Susan Kerr. They named the fonts after the stops on Philadelphia's mainline commuter train, Overbrook, Marion, Ardmore, and Rosemont. Jobs found the process fascinating.
Late one afternoon, he stopped by and started brooding about the font names. They were little cities that nobody's ever heard of, he complained. They ought to be world-class cities. The fonts were renamed Chicago, New York, Geneva, London, San Francisco, Toronto, and Venice. Markala and some others could never quite appreciate Jobs' obsession with typography. His knowledge of fonts was remarkable, and he kept insisting on having great ones, Markala recalled. I kept saying, fonts? Don't we have more important things to do? In fact, the delightful assortment of Macintosh fonts, when combined with laser writer printing and great graphics capabilities, would help launch the desktop publishing industry and be a boon for Apple's bottom line. It also introduced all sorts of regular folks, ranging from high school journalists to moms who edited PTA newsletters, to the quirky joy of knowing about fonts, which was once reserved for printers, grizzled editors, and other ink-stained wretches. Care also developed the icons, such as the trash can for discarding files that helped define graphical interfaces. She and Jobs hit it off because they shared an instinct for simplicity along with a desire to make the Mac whimsical. He usually came in at the end of every day, she said. He'd always want to know what was new, and he's always had good taste and a good sense for visual details. Sometimes he came in on Sunday morning, so Care made it a point to be there working. Every now and then, she would run into a problem. He rejected one of her renderings of a rabbit, an icon for speeding up the mouse click rate, saying that the furry creature looked too gay. Jobs lavished similar attention on the title bars atop windows and documents. He had Atkinson and Care do them over and over again as he agonized over their look. He did not like the ones on the Lisa because they were too black and harsh. He wanted the ones on the Mac to be smoother, to have pinstripes. We must have gone through twenty different title bar designs before he was happy, Atkinson recalled. At one point, Kerr and Atkinson complained that he was making them spend too much time on tiny little tweaks to the title bar when they had bigger things to do. Jobs erupted. Can you imagine looking at that every day? He shouted. It's not just a little thing. It's something we have to do right. Chris Espinoza found one way to satisfy Jobs' design demands and control freak tendencies. One of Wozniak's youthful acolytes from the days in the garage, Espinoza had been convinced to drop out of Berkeley by Jobs, who argued that he would always have a chance to study, but only one chance to work on the Mac. On his own, he decided to design a calculator for the computer. We all gathered around as Chris showed the calculator to Steve and then held his breath, waiting for Steve's reaction, Hertzfeld recalled. Well, it's a start, Jobs said, but basically, it stinks. The background color is too dark, some lines are the wrong thickness, and the buttons are too big. Espinoza kept refining it in response to Jobs' critiques day after day, but with each iteration came new criticisms. So finally, one afternoon, when Jobs came by, Espinoza unveiled his inspired solution, the Steve Jobs Roll-Your-Own Calculator Construction Set. It allowed the user to tweak and personalize the look of the calculator by changing the thickness of the lines, the size of the buttons, 
the shading, the background, and other attributes. Instead of just laughing, Jobs plunged in and started to play around with the look to suit his tastes. After about ten minutes, he got it the way he liked. His design, not surprisingly, was the one that shipped on the Mac and remained the standard for fifteen years. Although his focus was on the Macintosh, Jobs wanted to create a consistent design language for all Apple products. So he set up a contest to choose a world-class designer who would be for Apple what Dieter Rams was for Braun. The project was codenamed Snow White, not because of his preference for the color, but because the products to be designed were codenamed after the Seven Dwarfs. The winner was Hartmut Esslinger, a German designer who was responsible for the look of Sony's Trinitron televisions. Jobs flew to the Black Forest region of Bavaria to meet him, and he was impressed not only with Esslinger's passion, but also his spirited way of driving his Mercedes at more than 100 miles per hour. Even though he was German, Esslinger proposed that there should be a born-in-America gene for Apple's DNA that would produce a California global look, inspired by Hollywood and music, a bit of rebellion, and natural sex appeal. His guiding principle was form follows emotion, a play on the familiar maxim that form follows function. He produced 40 models of products to demonstrate the concept, and when Jobs saw them, he proclaimed, Yes! This is it. The snow white look, which was adopted immediately for the Apple IIc, featured white cases, tight rounded curves, and lines of thin grooves for both ventilation and decoration. Jobs offered Esslinger a contract on the condition that he moved to California. They shook hands, and in Esslinger's not so modest words, that handshake launched one of the most decisive collaborations in the history of industrial design. Esslinger's firm, Frog Design, opened in Palo Alto in mid-1983 with a $1.2 million annual contract to work for Apple, and from then on, every Apple product has included the proud declaration, Designed in California. From his father, Jobs had learned that a hallmark of passionate craftsmanship is making sure that even the aspects that will remain hidden are done beautifully. One of the most extreme and telling implementations of that philosophy came when he scrutinized the printed circuit board that would hold the chips and other components deep inside the Macintosh. No consumer would ever see it, but Jobs began critiquing it on aesthetic grounds. That part's really pretty, he said, but look at the memory chips, that's ugly. The lines are too close together. One of the new engineers interrupted and asked why it mattered. The only thing that's important is how well it works. Nobody is going to see the PC board. Jobs reacted typically. I want it to be as beautiful as possible, even if it's inside the box. A great carpenter isn't going to use lousy wood for the back of a cabinet even though nobody's going to see it. In an interview a few years later, after the Macintosh came out, Jobs again reiterated that lesson from his father. When you're a carpenter making a beautiful chest of drawers, you're not going to use a piece of plywood on the back, even though it faces the wall and nobody will ever see it. You'll know it's there, 
so you're going to use a beautiful piece of wood on the back. For you to sleep well at night, the aesthetic, the quality, has to be carried all the way through. From Mike Markala, he had learned the importance of packaging and presentation. People do judge a book by its cover, so for the box of the Macintosh, Jobs chose a full-color design and kept trying to make it look better. He got the guys to redo it 50 times, recalled Alan Rossman, a member of the Mac team who married Joanna Hoffman. It was going to be thrown in the trash as soon as the consumer opened it, but he was obsessed by how it looked. To Rossman, this showed a lack of balance. Money was being spent on expensive packaging while they were trying to save money on the memory chips. But for Jobs, each detail was essential to making the Macintosh amazing. When the design was finally locked in, Jobs called the Macintosh team together for a ceremony. Real artists sign their work, he said. So he got out a sheet of drafting paper and a Sharpie pen and had all of them sign their names. The signatures were engraved inside each Macintosh. No one would ever see them, but the members of the team knew that their signatures were inside, just as they knew that the circuit board was laid out as elegantly as possible. Jobs called them each up by name, one at a time. Burl Smith went first. Jobs waited until last, after all forty-five of the others. He found a place right in the center of the sheet and signed his name in lowercase letters with a grand flare. Then he toasted them with champagne. With moments like this, he got us seeing our work as art, said Atkinson. Chapter 13 Building the Mac The Journey is the Reward Competition When IBM introduced its personal computer in August 1981, Jobs had his team buy one and dissect it. Their consensus was that it sucked. Chris Espinoza called it a half-assed, hackneyed attempt, and there was some truth to that. It used old-fashioned command-line prompts and didn't support bitmapped graphical displays. Apple became cocky, not realizing that corporate technology managers might feel more comfortable buying from an established company like IBM rather than one named after a piece of fruit. Bill Gates happened to be visiting Apple headquarters for a meeting on the day the IBM PC was announced. They didn't seem to care, he said. It took them a year to realize what had happened. Reflecting its cheeky confidence, Apple took out a full-page ad in the Wall Street Journal with the headline, Welcome, IBM. Seriously. It cleverly positioned the upcoming computer battle as a two-way contest between the spunky and rebellious Apple and the establishment Goliath IBM, conveniently relegating to irrelevance companies such as Commodore, Tandy, and Osborne that were doing just as well as Apple. Throughout his career, Jobs liked to see himself as an enlightened rebel pitted against evil empires, a Jedi warrior or Buddhist samurai fighting the forces of darkness. IBM was his perfect foil. He cleverly cast the upcoming battle not as a mere business competition, but as a spiritual struggle. 
If for some reason we make some giant mistakes and IBM wins, my personal feeling is that we are going to enter sort of a computer dark ages for about 20 years, he told an interviewer. Once IBM gains control of a market sector, they almost always stop innovation. Even 30 years later, reflecting back on the competition, Jobs cast it as a holy crusade. IBM was essentially Microsoft at its worst. They were not a force for innovation. They were a force for evil. They were like AT&T or Microsoft or Google is. Unfortunately for Apple, Jobs also took aim at another perceived competitor to his Macintosh, the company's own Lisa. Partly it was psychological. He had been ousted from that group, and now he wanted to beat it. He also saw healthy rivalry as a way to motivate his troops. That's why he bet John Couch $5,000 that the Mac would ship before the Lisa. The problem was that the rivalry became unhealthy. Jobs repeatedly portrayed his band of engineers as the cool kids on the block, in contrast to the plotting HP engineer types working on the Lisa. More substantively, when he moved away from Jeff Raskin's plan for an inexpensive and underpowered portable appliance and reconceived the Mac as a desktop machine with a graphical user interface, it became a scaled-down version of the Lisa that would likely undercut it in the marketplace. Larry Tesler, who managed application software for the Lisa, realized that it would be important to design both machines to use many of the same software programs. So to broker peace, he arranged for Smith and Hertzfeld to come to the Lisa workspace and demonstrate the Mac prototype. Twenty-five engineers showed up and were listening politely when halfway into the presentation, the door burst open. It was Rich Page, a volatile engineer who was responsible for much of the Lisa's design. The Macintosh is going to destroy the Lisa, he shouted. The Macintosh is going to ruin Apple. Neither Smith nor Hertzfeld responded, so Page continued his rant. Jobs wants to destroy Lisa because we wouldn't let him control it, he said, looking as if he were about to cry. Nobody's going to buy a Lisa because they know the Mac is coming, but you don't care. He stormed out of the room and slammed the door. But a moment later, he barged back in briefly. I know it's not your fault, he said to Smith and Hertzfeld. Steve Jobs is the problem. Tell Steve that he's destroying Apple. Jobs did indeed make the Macintosh into a low-cost competitor to the Lisa, one with incompatible software. Making matters worse was that neither machine was compatible with the Apple II. With no one in overall charge at Apple, there was no chance of keeping Jobs in harness. End-to-end control Jobs' reluctance to make the Mac compatible with the architecture of the Lisa was motivated by more than rivalry or revenge. There was a philosophical component, one that was related to his penchant for control. He believed that for a computer to be truly great, its hardware and its software had to be tightly linked. When a computer was open to running software that also worked on other computers, it would end up sacrificing some functionality.
The best products, he believed, were whole widgets that were designed end-to-end, with the software closely tailored to the hardware and vice versa. This is what would distinguish the Macintosh, which had an operating system that worked only on its own hardware, from the environment that Microsoft was creating, in which its operating system could be used on hardware made by many different companies. Jobs is a strong-willed, elitist artist who doesn't want his creations mutated inauspiciously by unworthy programmers, explained ZDNet's editor Dan Farber. It would be as if someone off the street added some brushstrokes to a Picasso painting or changed the lyrics to a Dylan song. In later years, Jobs's whole widget approach would distinguish the iPhone, iPod, and iPad from their competitors. It resulted in awesome products, but it was not always the best strategy for dominating a market. From the first Mac to the latest iPhone, Jobs's systems have always been sealed shut to prevent consumers from meddling and modifying them, noted Leander Caney, author of Cult of the Mac. Jobs's desire to control the user experience had been at the heart of his debate with Wozniak over whether the Apple II would have slots that allow a user to plug expansion cards into a computer's motherboard and thus add some new functionality. Wozniak won that argument. The Apple II had eight slots. But this time around, it would be Jobs's machine, not Wozniak's, and the Macintosh would have limited slots. You wouldn't even be able to open the case and get to the motherboard. For a hobbyist or hacker, that was uncool. But for Jobs, the Macintosh was for the masses. He wanted to give them a controlled experience. It reflects his personality, which is to want control, said Barry Cash, who was hired by Jobs in 1982 to be a market strategist at Texaco Towers. Steve would talk about the Apple II and complain, We don't have control, and look at all these crazy things people are trying to do to it. That's a mistake I'll never make again. He went so far as to design special tools so that the Macintosh case could not be opened with a regular screwdriver. We're going to design this thing so nobody but Apple employees can get inside this box, he told Cash. Jobs also decided to eliminate the cursor arrow keys on the Macintosh keyboard. The only way to move the cursor was to use the mouse. It was a way of forcing old-fashioned users to adapt to point-and-click navigation, even if they didn't want to. Unlike other product developers, Jobs did not believe the customer was always right. If they wanted to resist using a mouse, they were wrong. There was one other advantage, he believed, to eliminating the cursor keys. It forced outside software developers to write programs specially for the Mac operating system, rather than merely writing generic software that could be ported to a variety of computers. That made for the type of tight vertical integration between application software, operating systems, and hardware devices that Jobs liked. Jobs' desire for end-to-end control also made him allergic to proposals that Apple licensed the Macintosh operating system to other office equipment manufacturers and allow them to make Macintosh clones. The new and energetic Macintosh marketing director, Mike Murray, 
proposed a licensing program in a confidential memo to Jobs in May 1982. We would like the Macintosh user environment to become an industry standard, he wrote. The hitch, of course, is that now one must buy Mac hardware in order to get this user environment. Rarely, if ever, has one company been able to create and maintain an industry-wide standard that cannot be shared with other manufacturers. His proposal was to license the Macintosh operating system to Tandy. Because Tandy's Radio Shack stores went after a different type of customer, Murray argued, it would not severely cannibalize Apple sales. But Jobs was congenitally averse to such a plan. His approach meant that the Macintosh remained a controlled environment that met his standards, but it also meant that, as Murray feared, it would have trouble securing its place as an industry standard in a world of IBM clones. Machines of the Year As 1982 drew to a close, Jobs came to believe that he was going to be Times' Man of the Year. He arrived at Texaco Towers one day with the magazine's San Francisco bureau chief, Michael Moritz, and encouraged colleagues to give Moritz interviews. But Jobs did not end up on the cover. Instead, the magazine chose the computer as the topic for the year-end issue and called it the Machine of the Year. Accompanying the main story was a profile of Jobs, which was based on the reporting done by Moritz and written by Jay Cox, an editor who usually handled rock music for the magazine. With his smooth sales pitch and a blind faith that would have been the envy of early Christian martyrs, it is Stephen Jobs more than anyone who kicked open the door and let the personal computer move in, the story proclaimed. It was a richly reported piece, but also harsh at times. So harsh that Moritz, after he wrote a book about Apple and went on to be a partner in the venture firm Sequoia Capital with Don Valentine, repudiated it by complaining that his reporting had been siphoned, filtered, and poisoned with gossipy benzene by an editor in New York whose regular task was to chronicle the wayward world of rock and roll music. The article quoted Bud Tribble on Jobs's reality distortion field and noted that he would occasionally burst into tears at meetings. Perhaps the best quote came from Jeff Raskin. Jobs, he declared, would have made an excellent king of France. To Jobs's dismay, the magazine made public the existence of the daughter he had forsaken, Lisa Brennan. He knew that Kotke had been the one to tell the magazine about Lisa, and he berated him in the Mac Group workspace in front of a half-dozen people. When the Time reporter asked me if Steve had a daughter named Lisa, I said, of course. Kotke recalled, friends don't let friends deny that they're the father of a child. I'm not going to let my friend be a jerk and deny paternity. He was really angry and felt violated and told me in front of everyone that I had betrayed him. But what truly devastated Jobs was that he was not, after all, chosen as the man of the year. As he later told me, Time decided they were going to make me man of the year, and I was 27, so I actually cared about stuff like that. I thought it was pretty cool. They sent out Mike Moritz to write a story. We're the same age and I had been very successful, and I could tell he was jealous, and there was an edge to him, 
he wrote this terrible hatchet job. So the editors in New York get this story and say, we can't make this guy man of the year. That really hurt, but it was a good lesson. It taught me to never get too excited about things like that, since the media is a circus anyway. They FedExed me the magazine, and I remember opening the package, thoroughly expecting to see my mug on the cover, and it was this computer sculpture thing. I thought, huh? And then I read the article, and it was so awful that I actually cried. In fact, there's no reason to believe that Moritz was jealous, or that he intended his reporting to be unfair, nor was Jobs ever slated to be man of the year, despite what he thought. That year, the top editors, I was then a junior editor there, decided early on to go with the computer rather than a person, and they commissioned, months in advance, a piece of art from the famous sculptor George Siegel to be a gatefold cover image. Ray Cave was then the magazine's editor. We never considered jobs, he said. You couldn't personify the computer, so that was the first time we decided to go with an inanimate object. We never searched around for a face to be put on the cover. Apple launched the Lisa in January 1983, a full year before the Mac was ready, and Jobs paid his $5,000 wager to Couch. Even though he was not part of the Lisa team, Jobs went to New York to do publicity for it in his role as Apple's chairman and poster boy. He had learned from his public relations consultant, Regis McKenna, how to dole out exclusive interviews in a dramatic manner. Reporters from anointed publications were ushered in sequentially for their hour with him in his Carlisle Hotel suite, where a Lisa computer was set on a table and surrounded by cut flowers. The publicity plan called for Jobs to focus on the Lisa and not mention the Macintosh, because speculation about it could undermine the Lisa. But Jobs couldn't help himself. In most of the stories based on his interviews that day, in Time, Business Week, The Wall Street Journal, and Fortune, the Macintosh was mentioned. Later this year, Apple will introduce a less powerful, less expensive version of Lisa, the Macintosh, Fortune reported. Jobs himself has directed that project. Business Week quoted him as saying, When it comes out, Mac is going to be the most incredible computer in the world. He also admitted that the Mac and the Lisa would not be compatible. It was like launching the Lisa with the kiss of death. The Lisa did indeed die a slow death. Within two years, it would be discontinued. It was too expensive, and we were trying to sell it to big companies when our expertise was selling to consumers, Jobs later said. But there was a silver lining for Jobs. Within months of Lisa's launch, it became clear that Apple had to pin its hopes on the Macintosh instead. Let's be pirates. As the Macintosh team grew, it moved from Texaco Towers to the main Apple buildings on Bandley Drive, finally settling in mid-1983 into Bandley 3. It had a modern atrium lobby with video games, which Burl Smith and Andy Hertzfeld chose, and a Toshiba compact disc stereo system with Martin Logan speakers and a hundred CDs. 
The software team was visible from the lobby in a fishbowl-like glass enclosure, and the kitchen was stocked daily with Oddwalla juices. Over time, the atrium attracted even more toys, most notably a Bosendorfer piano and a BMW motorcycle that Jobs felt would inspire an obsession with lapidary craftsmanship. Jobs kept a tight rein on the hiring process. The goal was to get people who were creative, wickedly smart, and slightly rebellious. The software team would make applicants play Defender, Smith's favorite video game. Jobs would ask his usual offbeat questions to see how well the applicant could think in unexpected situations. One day, he, Hertzfeld, and Smith interviewed a candidate for software manager who it became clear, as soon as he walked in the room, was too uptight and conventional to manage the wizards in the fishbowl. Jobs began to toy with him mercilessly. How old were you when you lost your virginity? he asked. The candidate looked baffled. What did you say? Are you a virgin? Jobs asked. The candidate sat there flustered, so Jobs changed the subject. How many times have you taken LSD? Hertzfeld recalled, The poor guy was turning varying shades of red, so I tried to change the subject and asked a straightforward technical question. But when the candidate droned on in his response, Jobs broke in. Gobble, 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 he said cracking up Smith and Hertzfeld. I guess I'm not the right guy, the poor man said as he got up to leave. For all of his obnoxious behavior, Jobs also had the ability to instill in his team an esprit de corps. After tearing people down, he would find ways to lift them up and make them feel that being part of the Macintosh project was an amazing mission. Every six months, he would take most of his team on a two-day retreat at a nearby resort. The retreat in September 1982 was at the Pajaro Dunes near Monterey. Fifty or so members of the MAC division sat in the lodge facing a fireplace. Job sat on top of a table in front of them. He spoke quietly for a while, then walked to an easel and began posting his thoughts. The first was Don't Compromise. It was an injunction that would over time be both helpful and harmful. Most technology teams made trade-offs. The Mac, on the other hand, would end up being as insanely great as Jobs and his acolytes could possibly make it, but it would not ship for another 16 months, way behind schedule. After mentioning a scheduled completion date, he told them it would be better to miss than to turn out the wrong thing a different type of project manager, willing to make some trade-offs, might try to lock in dates after which no changes could be made. Not Jobs. He displayed another maxim. It's not done until it ships. Another chart contained a Cohen-like phrase that he later told me was his favorite maxim. The journey is the reward. The Mac team, he liked to emphasize, was a special corps with an exalted mission. Someday they would all look back on their journey together and, forgetting or laughing off the painful moments, would regard it as a magical high point in their lives. At the end of the presentation, someone asked whether he thought they should do some market research to see what customers wanted. No, he replied. 
because customers don't know what they want until we've shown them. Then he pulled out a device that was about the size of a desk diary. Do you want to see something neat? When he flipped it open, it turned out to be a mock-up of a computer that could fit on your lap, with a keyboard and screen hinged together like a notebook. This is my dream of what we will be making in the mid to late 80s, he said. They were building a company that would invent the future. For the next two days, there were presentations by various team leaders and the influential computer industry analyst Ben Rosen, with a lot of time in the evenings for pool parties and dancing. At the end, Jobs stood in front of the assemblage and gave a soliloquy. As every day passes, the work fifty people are doing here is going to send a giant ripple through the universe, he said. I know I might be a little hard to get along with, but this is the most fun thing I've done in my life. Years later, most of those in the audience would be able to laugh about the little hard to get along with episodes and agree with him that creating that giant ripple was the most fun they had in their lives. The next retreat was at the end of January 1983, the same month the Lisa launched, and there was a shift in tone. Four months earlier, Jobs had written on his flip chart, Don't Compromise. This time, one of the maxims was, Real artists ship. Nerves were frayed. Atkinson had been left out of the publicity interviews for the Lisa launch, and he marched into Jobs' hotel room and threatened to quit. Jobs tried to minimize the slight, but Atkinson refused to be mollified. Jobs got annoyed. I don't have time to deal with this now, he said. I have sixty other people out there who are pouring their hearts into the Macintosh, and they're waiting for me to start the meeting. With that, he brushed past Atkinson to go address the faithful. Jobs proceeded to give a rousing speech, in which he claimed that he had resolved the dispute with Macintosh Audio Labs to use the Macintosh name. In fact, the issue was still being negotiated, but the moment called for a bit of the old reality distortion field. He pulled out a bottle of mineral water and symbolically christened the prototype on stage. Down the hall, Atkinson heard the loud cheer and with a sigh joined the group. The ensuing party featured skinny dipping in the pool, a bonfire on the beach, and loud music that lasted all night, which caused the hotel, La Playa and Carmel, to ask them never to come back. Another of Jobs' maxims at the retreat was, it's better to be a pirate than to join the Navy. He wanted to instill a rebel spirit in his team to have them behave like swashbucklers who were proud of their work but willing to commandeer from others. As Susan Kerr put it, he meant let's have a renegade feeling to our group we can move fast, we can get things done.